Hi, it's Susan from the future. This particular episode was recorded in 2011. It was a long, long time ago in a place far, far away. Well, the places that were far away were where Beckett and I were that evening when we recorded this. We were not in the same place. Therefore, the audio quality is not very good. But we loved our conversation, so we let it stay. When we knew better, we did better. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. It's our very first vintage movie discussion. We called it back then. Eventually, these kind of discussions would morph into our other show, The Recapery. Now on with the show. Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. And here's your 30-second summary. A tale of love and law, duty versus desire, set in Mrs. Astor's New York. The end. Welcome to the minicast. Now, you might hear a little audio difference on this minicast than usual. Just a little bit, because Becca and I actually do not live near each other at all. No, we're, we're, in, we're in the same city, but not in the same corners of it. And we're at least, yeah, we're at least 45 minutes away, so we're trying an experiment. <laughs> Experimental chicks. <laughs> For this minicast, we thought we would cover a movie based on a novel by Edith Wharton. Um, and it's set in the Gilded Age, in the very, very era when Mrs. Astor was at her heyday. Now, Mrs. Astor doesn't appear in this exactly, but exactly. there are shades of Mrs. Astor, I believe. I did see many shades of Mrs. Astor. That's true. So this film, The Age of Innocence, was filmed in 1993 and directed by Martin Scorsese. And I can tell you categorically, this is the only Martin Scorsese film I will ever review. <laughs> His usual work, like Goodfellas, etc., just mm-hmm. not not my cup of tea. There is a lot of chatter about this being Scorsese's greatest masterpiece. I don't know. So we open at the opera, and as we talked about during the Mrs. Astor podcast, the opera was where one went to see and be seen. And that is exactly what they're doing. And they're sitting in their boxes with their opera glasses on, not necessarily looking at the stage, but watching what's going on in the other boxes. I believe that opera is Faust. The basic hook of Faust is it's a man who sold his soul to the devil. <laughs> <laughs> So maybe there's a little bit of um, Edith Wharton implying that the main character, Newland Archer, has sold his soul to the devil by being part of society. I don't know. Okay, so the main characters are Newland Archer, who is a lawyer, a young lawyer, his fiancée, May Welland, who's played by Winona Ryder in a spectacular case of mis- miscasting, <laughs> in my opinion, and then Countess Olenska, who is an American woman who had married a Polish count and has left him to come back to her old home in New York City with her old family and extended circle of friends, played excellently by Michelle Pfeiffer. I will concur on that. <laughs> but Winona Ryder? Okay, okay, this is the thing. Winona, <laughs> she does the she does the doe-eyed ingenue perfectly in this movie. The problem is is that she's not she's multidimensional. This character and Winona doesn't play her as multidirectional. But I don't think that she's woefully miscast because she gets half of it right. I don't know. I have to say, I guess, you know how you have a picture in your mind of what the person's going to look like? Yes. Well, she... <laughs> well, that's very interesting coming from you, Beckett. <laughs> <laughs> well, she is, in the book, basically a tall, blonde, 
beautiful stone cold Amazon person. Uh huh. Okay. And so Winona Ryder is the polar opposite of the. I thought she was only half miscast. Wow. Okay. Faint <laughs> praise from Susan. <laughs> well, you know. Anyway. Okay. <laughs> okay. So during the opera, along comes a surprise entrant into the box across from our young lawyer and all his dudes that are in the club box. And they're shocked to see that, hmm, how shall we say, a woman with a bit of a reputation has entered the blameless box across the way of the of a New York family. That's right. How dare she bring her to this? Yeah, it seemed very shameless. It's all well and good to invite her over for tea or in private or whatever, but here she is in public. Now, the Countess has no idea that everyone's looking at her with such shock. She just thought she was coming home to a place where she would be treated with kindness. She has no idea about all these undercurrents going on. No, and she was much younger when she left, so that might have something to do with her perception of her home country. The lawyer goes over to show his solidarity to the family, not to Countess Olenska, really. He goes over to show that he believes in them. He's not going to let people mock them, and so if anybody's going to talk bad about the family, they've got him to contend with, too, basically, right. his appearance. And now, this is a family that he's going to be marrying into, so it's his family. Right. But the general population does not know that they are engaged as, as yet. Although, honestly, I think everybody's – that's all you have to talk about is each other. There's no high intellectual pursuits here. No. <laughs> so everybody probably already knows. It's probably yeah, just like oh. a formality it's, or whatever. But but he goes into the box, and he starts up a conversation with – Countess Olenska, and she's looking around at all the people in the opera, and she's saying, remembering back to her childhood, and she says, knickerbockers and pantaloons, and she remembers them all as little children that she grew up with, and now they're all these hoity-toity opera people. It's yeah. Kind of- I think that offended Newland Archer, as a matter of fact, because they're to be taken seriously. This is society, after all, and she's not taking it seriously. So someone gets up towards the end of the opera, just at the time that she normally does, and leaves, which is an indication that the ball will start in 30 minutes. And I actually think this, it's Regina Beaufort is who it is, and I don't think this could more clearly be Mrs. Astor right here. That's exactly what I was thinking. I was like, oh, it's Mrs. Astor going to the ball. Now, the only problem with directly saying it's Mrs. Astor, I mean, she does receive her guests under a ginormous portrait of herself. Not lost on me either. Yep. But her husband is present. He's not a completely absent dude. He's definitely in the story. So it's not directly Mrs. Astor, but that's a characteristic that Edith Wharton, who was, in fact, related to Mrs. Astor and moved Mm -hmm. in the same circles, I will guarantee you she heisted that from, from her relative there. Yeah, I would uh, I would agree, too, because that's exactly what I thought, especially with the portrait. Joanne Woodward does, is the narrator throughout this entire movie, and I think that the ball scene is very interesting, especially in light of the uh, Mrs. Astor and the whole Gilded Age podcast series that we're doing here, because it, she's describing some of the rules of society through this particular scene. Now, right at the very beginning, though, although they get it together later, perhaps it was a later take, but there was some extremely awkward waltzing at the beginning. Oh, my gosh! I saw that. <laughs> I'm um I'm thinking, oh my friends. But the cool thing was they showed the wall thing from above, and I always loved that with the skirt flip. And they got better toward the end, so that's good. And they did that dance. The German cotillion. Yes. The costumes, I have to say, were superb. The same person that does the costumes for this, I hope some of you have um, access to Showtime, but the same person that did the costumes for this movie is doing the costumes for the Borgias. So I do hope you get a chance to peek at that because that is some talent. 
And Beckett, not only you thought the costumes were great, that was the only Academy Award that they won was for costuming. Well, later on at one of the dinners, they're discussing worth gowns and the purchasing and what is the proper amount of time before wearing the gown. Do you mm-hmm. wear it right out of the box or do you let it mellow? <laughs> that's so old New York to let it mellow. If she were Evo Reese, you'd put it right on. That's right, and that's what, that's the conversation that this, this family was having. So I thought it was, that was very interesting and tied in to uh, what we talked about. In They're at the ball, and I think May is just May is just a child. I just can't explain it. I can't explain how much she irritates me. <laughs> she is very young. Winona Ryder was very young when she made this movie. You know, I, I thought it was consistent. Can I talk about the flowers now? Okay. Okay. Um, Newland gives May a bouquet of Lily of the Valley every day. And back in Victorian times, all the flowers had a meaning. Very interesting to look at the bouquets that the characters in this movie got, knowing what their meanings are. Lily of the Valley means return of happiness or trust or purity is what that particular bouquet means. And that's what he gives her every single day. He has a bouquet of Lily of the Valley sent to her. Nice. Yeah. And later on, there's red, yellow roses, and there's a bouquet um, that Countess Olenska gets that is red roses and pansies. It is not given to her by Newland, but by someone else. And red roses mean I love you, and pansies mean think of me. Or And they were purple, so it means you occupy my thoughts. I mean, it was a heavy message bouquet, <laughs> and she yeah. got rid of it. And she sends it out. She Give it to her maid and says, Keep this to the people down the street. What do yellow roses mean? Yellow roses mean, actually, this was interesting because I had a, I didn't un- quite understand it, but they mean infidelity or a decrease of love or jealousy. So maybe it's not so much that Newland Archer is sending that message, but that Edith Wharton is sending that message to us, the reader. Or maybe he, there was another list that had it meaning something else. Huh. <laughs> but every list that I looked at, because I'm like, what do the yellow roses mean? And in this particular movie, Newland sends them to Countess Alenska. So right after the ball, the family, the uh, Mingotts and Wellens, decide, uh, those are Ellen's actual blood family, decide that they're going to have a dinner party to introduce her to all of New York. And one by one, all of New York society declines. Rapidly. They blame this on a character named Lawrence Lefferts, who, if you've listened to the Mrs. Astor podcast, I believe is half of the character of Ward McAllister. Oh, oh, right, yes, you had said that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, Ward McAllister, I think, was represented by two characters in this, the Lawrence Lefferts character, who was all about the form, like what shoes to wear and the tying of a tie and the, the pouring of the sauces, and yeah. then also Sillerton Jackson, who was the expert on whose family was who and, you know, what scandals were where and this and that. So it, he, knew, he had a finger on everything. He was worse than any catty woman I've ever heard. So let's call this the crisis of the failed dinner party because everyone didn't come. Yeah, clearly it was kind of sad. Everything was being readied and the maids and servants and kitchen people are shown making final touches on the most amazing dinner party food. Yes. But I think it was for dramatic effects because obviously you're not going to make it up for our until you know who's going to come, but whatever. So <laughs> I don't know that the schwab blob would take a while to make. The family decides, actually it's Newland Archer that decides, to appeal to the Vanderleidens, who are basically the 
um, I guess the reigning monarchs of the family, the elder members of the family. Mm-hmm. And everyone reveres them to a point of almost sickness. So the Vanderlides decide that they are going to throw their weight behind Ellen, and not Ellen as Ellen, in fact, because they really, I don't even think they like Ellen very much, but they decide that if the family is going to back her, then that should be final, and the Lawrence Lufferts or the upstarts have no business making judgment on it, and that that's law, that's what they're going to stand behind, and so they invite Ellen to a dinner, a small dinner. There's not that many people at this dinner. There are more people invited, like a second tier of guests are invited for later for a reception and dancing, but the people actually, actually at the dinner are very limited, so it's a big honor, which Ellen doesn't seem to appreciate as she comes remarkably late. <laughs> and a fabulous red gown, by the way. Oh, yes. And I loved the whole, when she was coming, how the servant was lighting the candle and turned away because mm-hmm. he's not supposed to be on the stairs. You're not supposed to acknowledge him in any way. And she, she didn't, and he turned properly that's so all the um footmen standing on the stairs on the way up was kind of impressive too i thought but she arrives late and and she has dinner and she's not exactly doing what she's supposed to be doing she's not really far off base but there's little things that she's doing that are not exactly proper well and they call this in the book um joanne woodward the narrator is talking about how um it's an it's a hieroglyphic world Mm-hmm. which is interesting because everyone seems to know without saying what the proper thing to do is, but they never say what they think and they never say really what's going on. It's like a blind obeying of tradition. And if we didn't have Joanne Woodward telling us what, what was going on, we would just think that it was a really dull dinner party. It's like a dirty game of Survivor, isn't it? Only everyone smiles while underneath they're kicking you under the table, kind of. That's right, with their fans. Can I just have that fan? Ellen is sitting there on the sofa talking to Newland, and she has this black feather fan, and she's just kind of, I mean, it's like a, it's like part of her body, the way she's using the fan. It was great. I thought that was really interesting to watch. It would be interesting to know from some kind of expert if that was because there was actually a language of fans. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, that was more apparent perhaps during the Marie Antoinette era, but I'm wondering if somebody of that era would look at her and go, what is she doing? What is she? Is she just- but I, yeah, and I'm sitting here at this area going, cool, I want a fan. <laughs> Getting back to our story, Ellen is welcome back into society in a way. You know, Newland is so intrigued by her already. I think she's so unusual. He's already kind of expressed his own breakout thoughts about women should be as free as men and this and that. I mean, he's already kind of a rebel anyway, only, you know, he keeps most of it inside, and certainly he keeps it all in the cigar room. He's not broadcasting. Oh, they sure smoked a lot in this movie. (laughs) So um, I think it's interesting that everyone's paintings are supposed to say something about them, kind of. I don't know the names of all the paintings. I do know there's one painting where there's um, a woman being attacked by Indians. Mm-hmm. And I believe it's in old Grandma Mingott's uh, house. It's very unusual. She's got a yeah. lot of Wild West type paintings, but that actually um, has a Daniel Day Lewis connection because the woman depicted in there is um, the basis for Cora in um, Last of the Mohicans. And Daniel Day Lewis did a fine job in Last of the Mohicans, which we may have to cover. Okay. It's a mighty nice, it's a mighty good movie. I, I love watching movies that tie into the women that we discussed. So anyway, um, everybody has very, very conservative taste, except for Mrs. Mingott, who I actually really do like, despite the fact that she never gets off that couch. Oh, I know. And Ellen, who I also like very much. So Their personalities were actually 
very contemporary, I think. Yeah. You know, very find your own bliss, create your own lives, not the women of the time. So, yeah, I really like Mrs. Mingott as well. There is a bit of a divorce crisis. Ellen has just decided that she wants to be divorced, and she just wants someone to handle it. So she approaches a law firm. And she no, wait, can I stop you for a second? Mm-hmm. It is never actually said in the movie the type of abuse that she suffered under the count. Is it neglect? Is it emotional? Is it physical? I said I, you never get the answer to that question. She seemed to have been very happy in Europe. Right. You know, where I come from, we don't do this, we don't do that. You know, that's her life. That's what she knows. But she seemed very comfortable there. Right. But it could be also something as simple as, you know, during the Mrs. Astor podcast, we talked about how Harry Lair tricked someone into marrying him for for her money Mm -hmm. and bluntly told her he hated all women and hated her especially. Right. Well, and there is, you you might be onto something, because there was some dialogue in, in the movie about her money. It wasn't her. She was trying to get her own money back. Right. He's only giving her a small amount of it. So you that might be it. Yeah. So Newland is sent by his very skittish partners. This whole divorce thing, everyone's not very comfortable talking about this at all. Even though Ellen thought it would be a simple matter of like, okay, send a document, I'll sign it. Right. Her family starts to panic and sends Newland. I guess they think he's got the right head on his shoulders for this. Well, and he's, he, they know that he knows the family and that he can talk to. I mean, it's a very delicate matter. Right. Yeah have somebody that you don't know discussing this little woman. So two things that I love about this meeting, they actually have a lemon fork. (laughs) I got to love the appropriately complicated um, silver service. So she has, she offers him a slice of lemon and she uses a real little lemon fork. So love that. And then I love the way that she sits and that's completely determined by her corsets. The way she was sitting is actually kind of slouching because you would actually perch on the edge of the, so far, whatever, but yeah, to lounge, you can't really bend your back properly, so. I think I'm going to sit on myself for that way. I think that the Countess Olinska said it best when she, this is summarizes it here, that she said the real unhappiness is living among all these kind people who only ask you to pretend. And I think that's like the fundamental thing she has a problem with is she's, and that's why she likes Julius Beaufort, who is the man about town she starts being seen with. He's a married man and he's got a bad reputation. But and he's you know, the one who sends her those roses and pants. But, yeah, but he's the only one who says what he thinks and does what he means. And I think that's got to be refreshing because it seems to me that's the kind of guy that she was around in Europe. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I, don't, I didn't even find anything to hate in Julius Beaufort at all, really. Except, Except for, for the, the fact that, he fact that he's married. Wanting to cheat. He never did cheat on his wife with her, but he certainly tried to. Did you know he not? I, I don't know. Did he not? Yeah, I don't think so. You don't? No. Okay. I don't think. Well, I mean, not with Countess Zelenska. Okay. I mean, they don't show it. I just wondered. He just seems to be with her quite a bit and sending her red roses. and. Well, and that's when she got mad. Stalking her. Yeah. But I'm just saying that's, that's like, when he got to that point, mm-hmm. that's when she got irritated and uncomfortable. You know what I'm okay. saying? Yeah, I got you. Okay. I agree. Yeah, I just think that... You know, he's probably just probably more relaxing to be with. You don't have to be someone else when you're around him. Except his wife, who gets a tongue lashing later on by Mrs. Mingott. I think it's more like, you made your choice. That's exactly what she said. Yeah. (laughs) Live with it.
Um, so you know what I don't like is this weird thing that Martin Scorsese does with the, the vignette. I, there's two things. Like I don't like how he flashes on the jewelry, jewelry, hair, jewelry. I don't like that. And then I don't like these weird little um like light circles he seems to draw around people's heads or something. Yes. Did you notice that? Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, and I wrote that in my notes. It's just it's awkward. It's cheesy and it's disgusting. He did it first at the florist shop when Newland is looking for yellow roses. And he, he did it. And then he did it again when they were in the theater. Right. So, I mean, I get it. You just want to concentrate on this one couple's conversation. I got that. But that's all that was in the frame. It, there wasn't anything else going on. We would have been looking at them. Yeah. It's yeah. I thought that was kind of a cheesy little technique there, but but anyway, um, the Countess is just devastated when Newman tries to convince her not to get divorced. She kind of sees it as um, kind of a betrayal, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, she had her mindset. That's what was going to happen, and, and he was pointing out the reasons why it would not be in her best interest to get divorced. Right. Well, and from his perspective, that's true. People are going to shun her. I mean, they were, they were having a hard enough time with her as it is. That could just give them the catalyst. Later, Sillerton Jackson says she just will need to find her place, meaning she's not going to be up high in society. She's going to find her place down wherever that is. Yeah, man, it's, it's, man, it's shocking how fast people are writing her off, but. <laughs> well, it's easier to write people off than to go through the effort to accept them. So gradually now, the switching of affections starts to begin, I think. That exceedingly bad play affected him so much. <laughs> Newland had said that when he was in London, he watched the same play. He'd seen it so many times. It was his favorite. And I'm looking at it, I'm going, I must have missed something. It's so funny, though, because if it's his favorite, you know how when you're in high school and then you break up with somebody, every song seems to be like about your situation. <laughs> Yeah. You know what I mean? Even though yeah. I've heard those songs a thousand times before, I think it's, you know, it happens to be his favorite play, fair enough, but then he sees it with these thoughts in his head, and all of a sudden, the kissing of the velvet ribbon. It's about us, and how we can't touch, and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> I do see her character here in this movie so similar to her character in Dangerous Liaisons, the reluctant participant in romance. Yeah, I... I found them so similar that I confused them. I mean, I, I saw both movies when they first came out. Again, I'm old. So I had, you know, I'd seen this movie in the theaters back in 1993, and I'd seen Dangerous Liaisons, which was around the same time. Yes, very similar. It's hey, did you see it? Had you seen it before? Oh, yeah. In, in the theater when it first came out? Um... No, I'm sure I saw it on, you know, does anyone remember VHS? I'm sure I saw it in the VHS era. In fact, I probably had it on VHS. Although I don't have such a machine in the house these days. I don't know. You know, I actually got this from the library, and it was on VHS. Oh, there you go. And I do have a VHS machine in my house. So, yeah, I I got to rewind. I got to be kind, rewind. Wow, bringing it on back. I know. Old school, old school. So I love the scene in the the little house where Newland Archer thinks that she is returning his affection. Uh-huh. And she may well be returning his affection, but then in comes Beaufort. <laughs> he stalked her. Yeah, but Newland takes that as, oh, your boyfriend's here. Gradually, the things Newland thought were familiar are really starting to grate on him. May and her insipidness are really starting to irritate him rather than be, you know, he's not delighted in her innocence any longer. He's just 
irritated by her. Everyone chattering around him seems to irritate him. He's so irritated by her that he sucks her down to Florida and asks her to get married sooner. Yeah, and May, in a one-hit wonder-like burst of maturity and insight, which never happens before or since, (laughs) she thought that his mind was on another woman and wanted to make sure that he wasn't hurrying things along just to prevent himself from cheating on her. But he had been famously involved long before Countess Olenska came on the scene for two years with a married woman named Mrs. Rushworth. And his whole family despaired because she was an older woman and had taken him in, you know, and, mm-hmm. and you know, tricked him. And he was never going to get married because this woman had a hold of him. And everyone was very relieved when they broke up. And so May seems to think there's a revival of Mrs. Rushworth going on. Right. But he tells her, no, 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 that is long past. I'm in the living in the present and let's get married sooner. Eventually, they succumb to temptation, and there is the big old, you know, passionate kiss that is very reminiscent of the Dangerous Liaison's kiss, by the way. Um, yeah. There is a big difference between that giggly May, you know, that giggly May kiss. Oh, you kissed me in public. And it's like a little peck on the, you know, lips or whatever. Yeah. But this passionate kiss. I mean, that's night and day. <laughs> okay. Let, can we talk about this, the kissing? Sure. I mean, I... I thought it was a little, um, I, I thought the most, the most interesting and the most central scene in the whole movie was with the glove. They're riding in the carriage and he slowly unbuttons his, her glove and kisses the inside of her wrist. That was hot. Yeah. He's really fine all the normal lip kissing, all that great. Yeah, it's, that was a little, um, contrived or something. I don't know. Just like they had bad breath or something. And there was one kiss that looked like Michelle Pfeiffer actually came up for air. He had to get her. <laughs> <laughs> she, she opened her mouth, tickled Gulf Bear, and then went back in, closed mouth. I don't know. You know, that boy kisses a lot of things. He kisses the pink umbrella, and he kisses, or there's velvet kissing, and there's a shoe kissing, and I'm just like, just, uh, substitute kissing. I don't know. <laughs> he just can't hot kiss on the lips, so he goes for other parts. So basically, I think these people... Both of these people are just prisoners of their own moral code or something. They're just all of them. Every single person in here is acting in this tiny little circle. Mm-hmm. I don't mean the actors. I mean the characters like themselves huh. as people. Just yeah. this tiny place in which to operate. It's just so frustrating to me looking at it from a freer society, I guess. Just break out. Just do what you want. What is this? Just who cares? Who will know in five years? God, just leave. But... I, you know what? I don't know. I think that we, that there's a lot of people in this, especially in this society now, that have to do things because of obligations that are not necessarily their, the dream, their dream lives. You know, like when you have kids and you, you have to, you have to give up a lot of that stuff and you have yeah. to make sacrifices. It's, I think it's the same kind of theory in play. And that's what Daniel Day Lewis's character is, is doing throughout this movie, growing up. I know. I just get frustrated, though, because really, Countess Olenska has flown in the face of all this anyway. So what is she going to lose if they just bust out and go to Europe and, or, heck, go live on a boat or something? You know what I mean? Like, he's the one that's going to pay the price, but does he even like these people? <laughs> but they're, they're his people. He's their future patriarch. He's, oh. he's the 
the male head of the family. I just think that is no reason to throw this away. That's a frustra- it's a frustrating book, and it's a frustrating movie to me. He doesn't go with Alenska. He does the right thing and goes with May. But why is that the right thing? May could marry any number of boring young men <laughs> and lead her boring young life. Everyone seems to love her. She is the belle of the ball at every party. I just think if you paint him as enough of a cad, you'll come out just fine. May is pretty manipulative already. And when you have your game face on all the time, that young, something's wrong with your brain. (laughs) That's interesting. And this is where I earlier when I said that um, Winona Ryder didn't play both both the depths of the character. I I didn't see her being manipulative. I got it that she was. But mm-hmm. it, I didn't see it. They get married. Yep. Now, did you know that Martin Scorsese is the wedding photographer taking her bridal portrait? I didn't know that until after. <laughs> I thought that was kind of cool. Movie director, I would totally put myself in the movie somewhere. You know, Alfred Hitchcock used to do that mm-hmm. all the time. Um, so, after they're married, they go visit all over the world. And I'm sure Mae takes in, you know, none of it. I'm sure she buys some fancy clothes and that's about whatever. Um, that's just what one does. You go on the grand tour for your honeymoon, and then you come home. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that Newland wanted to be, I mean, he is obviously well-traveled, and, you know, he wanted more culture than May was willing to give him, you know. She wanted to be at home doing regular old things with regular old people. I say regular old people, but, you know, they end up in Newport and at the casino, which is still there, in fact, which is... Something strange now, like the Tennis Hall of Fame or something. Okay, yeah. But at the time, it was the place to see and be seen. It's that Tudor building that they're behind during the archery competition. Uh-huh. And this is one time that I think Lawrence Lefferts gets it right, although he's snide, and you probably shouldn't be talking like that right in front of somebody's husband, which is dirty, you know. <laughs> but he may, you know, hits the archery target, and he snidely mentions to his companion, Julius Beaufort, that, well, that's the only kind of target she'll ever hit. You know, which I guess is probably, as it says in the book, not in the movie, but it does say that's exactly the thing one would want to hear about one's wife. But somehow it really disturbed him that the other men thought she was boring. She is boring. But, you know, when boring people think your wife is boring, oof. Yeah, but she knew how to shoot an arrow. Yeah. And and she's still giggling. Her grandma teases her about, you need to save that for your eldest girl. And there's, like, blushing and giggling. Come on. Grandma knows we're having sex here. So after his marriage, it's almost like he went into this depression, Mm -hmm. I think. But upon hearing that Ellen is within striking distance, it's like bee to the flower. Yes. Right where she is. And then there's like that arrow that that May was shooting towards the target. Yeah. Yeah. He's headed right for the target. And he, you know, he messes up once and, you know, kisses some strange girl's pink parasol. <laughs> some sick girl. So that's kind of embarrassing. It's like, oh, well, I'm really glad you made love to the umbrella. <laughs> he sees it. Oh, this must be hers. I'm going to smell the handle. <laughs> it's like, do you feel like enough of a fool? Because we all saw you. Yeah. But whatever. No one else, no one in the movie saw him. So I guess that's what's important. He stopped Ellen. And he finally finds her, and she's at on a dock at the beach, far away from anybody. And he doesn't say anything. He plays this ridiculous game with himself. Okay, if a, if she turns around, 
by the time this boat passes, it's like, you know, when yeah. you used to be like, if I don't step on a crack, I'll get an A on this test. He's looking for signs. He wants to know if he should be going. To, he knows that if he goes to her, he's crossed the line. And he is at the line. I got that whole part. I got it. I can totally understand the line. I got it. I guess so. But, you know, did you see the look on his face when he turned away? Like, it, the boat went across. Mm-hmm. And... She hadn't turned around. And the look on his face was very, very disappointed. And in my mind is, if you flip a coin, the main reason for flipping a coin is so that you know which way you're hoping it will land. Right. And so if he flips this coin, i.e., the turning around in the boat, he knows which way he wants it to happen. So why doesn't he just make it happen? I don't understand it. It's irritating to me. Because he's, he's being pulled in two different directions. He's being pulled to this. You know, the sense of duty and honor to May, who at this point is his wife, and Ellen, who is this this unknown life. He's torn. He's torn. And he makes his decision based on something arbitrary, and he realizes that he has to live that decision. I think that if he ha- if she had turned and he had gone to her, he would have had a, a similar look, another feeling of regret for having gone. It was a no-win. Hmm. I don't know. I think there's... I I think that he should have gone with the no win that ended in true love and perhaps ostracism. Um, I think that he did what a lot of people do and go for duty and honor and family and tradition. I mean, that's important to a lot of people. Well, so he does. And although he is, he is tempted again to stray and spends a lovely day with her mm-hmm. in Boston. Yes. And it's it's a very poignant what might have been day, and he he um, throws out the theory that what you know can't we go to a place where this doesn't matter? And she kind of bitterly asks him, "Do you know? Have you ever been to this place? Yeah, where is this that? place? This mythical unicorn type of place?" I think Ellen. Well, at this point, she's trying to decide whether to go back to her husband or not because he wants her back for whatever reason. And now does she go back to that life, or does she stay here and, and continue her spiral down into who knows, who knows who would be around for her? Well, and I think now that she knows that the true love thing, i.e. Newland, is not going to happen, that was what was holding her in America, I think. And the fact that her husband account had given her such liberal terms, really all she had to do was kind of show up at the head of his dinner table once in a while and, and have appearances. And in Europe, you know, it was... At the time, it was very common for husbands and wives to lead separate lives and have separate interests and, you know, boyfriends, girlfriends, etc. So maybe she saw that that was the lesser of the two evils than being lonesome and ostracized in America. Or she could be the center of society with all of her money and jewels there, but no true love. So, hmm. But she could also create her own life better in Europe. Yeah. Than she could in, in New York. America. <laughs> and so then, you know, there's this last temptation, and then May reveals that she is pregnant. And not only did she reveal she was pregnant, she told Ellen ahead of time when she didn't even, she made it up, basically, two weeks prior, mm-hmm. and that's why Ellen decided to go back to the Count. Right. Because that was the final blow, but May flat out made it up. Yep, and and I, that scene, I, I mean, I heard the, I think it was better for me if I closed my eyes and watched it. Because hearing the words, I could, I could see that she, she lied. 
but watching her face, she just didn't have the depth of um, as an actress, I didn't think, which is really ironic because she got nominated as a supporting actress for an Academy Award in this movie. She didn't win, but she was nominated. I just here, here we go. She was awfully cast. <laughs> I just don't think that was a good choice. Well, she didn't it. win. So. Well, well, there you go. <laughs> I don't know who would have been a good. Who, hmm. Actually, you know who would have been really great at, in that role? Hmm. Michelle Pfeiffer. <laughs> oh, well. Yes. I think she was young enough that she probably could have played a little bit younger. Well, and Ellen Olenska was, it's not just the physical thing that bothers me, because Ellen Olenska in the book was, was um, mentioned as being dark. Oh. And I, that, it, Michelle doesn't, Michelle Pfeiffer didn't bother me as Countess Olenska, so it can't just be the physical appearance thing mm-hmm. that bothers me. But they were, maybe that's why a dark person was cast as his, his ingenue fiancé, so there wouldn't be too much confusion, but. Oh, physically different. Yeah, that's true, maybe. I don't know. I'm I'm trying to think who who could pull it off. Like maybe Gwyneth Paltrow in her Emma days. Oh yes. Appearance wise, at least would have been a better choice. They would have made a very striking couple: Daniel Day Lewis and Gwyneth Paltrow. Miscast, miscast. What she was doing in 1993. I don't think she was yet married to the band Coldplay. Uh-uh, no. The final scene after New York pulls out all the manipulative Vanderlight and society closing out, they allow them to have a final goodbye, but it's in public kind of thing. Mm-hmm. After all that happens, okay, so Ellen's gone, and Newland's soul is basically gone, although he goes on, you know, he gets elected to office and becomes a respectable father. Father. Many times over. Mm hmm. And they play out the, the whole, the next, what, 20-some-odd years. 25, 26, yeah. Yeah, and just just a few minutes in one room, which I thought was wonderful. I love that scene. Yeah. I, I thought that was a great, I, I would much rather a scene like that than watching a bunch of pictures as someone ages and the pictures will flash and by. I love that scene. And so uh, at the end, May has died, and he is in Europe. With his son. Ted Archer, his number, his firstborn son, and his Ted Archer is played by Robert Sean Leonard, who is in House, Doctor House's best friend. He's also a doctor. Of course, but he's much younger at the time. <laughs> he's one of those actors that's in a lot of things. And you're like, oh, I've seen him before. This is the guy. And I don't like the ending. I never liked the ending of the book, and I don't like the ending any better of the movie. The son decides to go visit. His, uh, his uh, mother's cousin, the Countess Olenska, how glamorous it is to have a cousin who's a countess. He's going to go visit her. And doesn't his father want to come up? And Newland punks. He punks. Oh. And he's sitting down there looking up at the window like a dog. Yep. He's like, ah. Uh. But again, he's torn. And then how torn is he? He flashes back to the scene at the beach in his head. He's like, oh, this reminds me of the scene at the beach. I knew she was watching. At this point, he knows that she was watching him at the beach. He, she knew he was there, and just like that, he knows that she's at the window on the third floor, even though he can't see her. She knows he's sitting down there. And is she going to go up? Does he? No. And you're disappointed in that. That's it's, it. It's just another case of, and I will say this is all in the book too. It's not like they made this up for the movie or whatever, but it's just a case of. Dude, man up and walk up the freaking stairs. I don't understand. I just like, oh. And what's the point now of not doing it? Who's he's? Because know. he think the woman that he thinks back to is the woman. It's like your first 
good real love in life, you're never going to be able to go back. It's the same. It's the same situation. You you know you oh he was my high school boyfriend. Let's go get back together. No, it's not going to work because you're two totally different people. All these years have passed. It's not. He wants to remember her as she was. Well, and I guess I'm um I'm st- he's just a glutton for punishment. I guess in my life. <laughs> He just wants to torture himself. Oh, he's a martyr. And at this point, I'm like, please feel free, because I'm done with you. <laughs> but that was convenient, because the movie was over. <laughs> I know, yeah, so that was good. That was kind of where I went, oh, really? You're not going to go up. So, so is it time for kind of final thoughts and then a rating, maybe? Okay. I, I, I liked this movie. There was periods of time in this movie where I looked at my watch, and I knew how... It's, it's over two hours long. So it was like, oh, my goodness, this is a long movie. And I did have to stop it and get up a couple times. It, it did drag a little bit. But overall, in retrospect, I think that it had parts that I really liked. I really admi- admired Mrs. Mingott. I, I, I'd like to be like her, speaking my mind and such a, and a kind of a free spirit. And, and her granddaughter, Ellen, um, was very similar to her in that regard. So I, I did like that. I have to say, I like the um, the set design was superb, mm-hmm. and even the prop master and the lemon fork knocked me out so often. Set direction was actually up for a nomin up for an Academy Award nomination. It didn't get it. So was music, and um, the music and was writing good. from another medium. But the only thing that won was the costumes, which were absolutely fabulous. The thing that sums up this movie, I think, for me, is that one of the characters said that they were given their first glimpse of a real life and then told to go on with a false one. And I think this is that's what the movie's all about. I agree. Now, Beckett, let's yes. rock it old school here. An A to F rating, what do you give it? Hmm. I think it is. People are going to hate. I mean, I love period movies, but I'm going to give this one a C+. Plus. Oh, that's very interesting because I was going to give it a B minus. Ah. <laughs> so you loving it more? I that's very interesting. But however, I must grade on a curve. <laughs> had it been on mute and I hadn't glanced up at those weird little circles of light around people occasionally, I would have given it an A. Oh, the light brought it down that far for you, really. It wasn't Winona Ryder, huh? No, Winona Ryder's the thing that brought it down to a C plus. I'm oh. just saying, had it been on mute and I wouldn't have to listen to anyone talk, oh, I know the story is the thing. So, I mean, so wait, basically, if you had been reading the book, you would have given it an A. No, no, the costumery was awesome. The the attention to detail with the ball, the set design, yeah. even just the you know the carriages, everything was so well researched and so well done, and I. Okay. I know the story, and so if I'd been able to play the story in my mind, yeah, I think I would have given it a much higher higher grade. It just did. So okay. let's call it as is C plus. All right, and I'm giving it a B minus. That might be all we have for the uh, minicast. Thanks for participating in our experiment with us. Yes, it was very interesting sitting here in my kitchen <laughs> and not in our normal places. Yeah, very strange. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Bye. For show notes and links to the things we talked about today, please visit us at thehistorychicks.com. Follow us on Twitter at The History Chicks with with an X. X. Or like us on Facebook without an X. If you'd like to see in real life, please tell a few friends or leave a review for us on iTunes. 
The music in our podcast comes courtesy of Music Alley. Visit them at music.mevio.com. She sits alone with a dream that is broken silent tears are hid away and if she could fly where would she go to another time another place into space tears from the face she shed her angel and